is that that's always what happens. There are a number of them in your sermon notes this morning, and maybe at some point along the way, you can identify with one or two of them. I don't know if you've had those times in your life when you felt like everything was going so well, there were so many good things happening, and then all of a sudden, one thing took a turn, and you felt your life was out of control. 100 good things could have happened, 12 good things could have happened, it could have been an amazing week, and all of a sudden, one thing on Friday or Saturday morning, and you feel like your life's out of control. Bob McGee in his book, Search for Significance, says you can hear 20 compliments and one negative, and you'll concentrate four times more on the negative than the 20 compliments. I know that. That's what I wrestle with on a regular basis. Some of you may have had those times in your life when you're dealing with some really deep emotions. You want to share it, but you're not sure how. If you're really honest, you're not even sure if you know what you feel, but you know you really feel some very deep, desponding moments. And you may have even tried to share it with a real good, meaningful Christian. Someone has been in your life, but they shared biblical verses and Bible verses, but they didn't really share their heart. And you didn't feel like you could. And you didn't know where you could go with all those emotions. Or maybe your life has been going so fast for so long that if it doesn't slow down, you don't know if you can keep going. Anybody like that? Where you feel like your life is going so fast for so long that if it doesn't slow down or you don't have a break every once in a while, you're not sure if you can continue. If any of those describes you at any level of your life, then you're going to find a lot of insights from 1 Kings 18 and 19. If you haven't been with us before, we're on a journey in the Old Testament with some contemporary lessons from some Old Testament characters. And what I have found is God began to lead me from one after the other to the other, that I have learned a lot from these guys. I've learned a lot through the years from these guys, and I'm still learning. These stories were written three to 4,000 years ago. But I feel like every once in a while when I read them, I'm living this stuff. And I hope you do too. This story this morning out of 1 Kings 18 is one of the most well-known in the entire Old Testament. It's the story of Elijah calling down fire from heaven, taking on the prophets of Baal, the fire lapping up the sacrifice, lapping up all the water that was poured on the sacrifice. He takes on the prophets of Baal, one of the most visible demonstrations of the power of God outside the parting of the Red Sea. And then you go to chapter 19, which seems like it's two different people, two different experiences, two different responses, and then you recognize it's the same guy. And you wonder, how can that be? When you read that first chapter, if you've ever read it before, hopefully you did yesterday on Phone Tree, you thought, man, that I would have loved to have been there. That is a story that I would like to see visibly in front of me unfold. But most of the time, we kind of ignore chapter 19 because if we're real honest, we don't know what to do with it. Chapter 18 is that classic Old Testament, New Testament, movie kind of battle between good and evil. In this context here, it's a battle between the God of Israel and the gods that the Canaanites and others were following that now was influencing the Israelites, in this case, a God named Baal. It's an amazing story. Elijah had already predicted just because of the insights and the circumstances going on around him that it wasn't going to rain for a period of time. And it didn't. It ceased. I'm still astounded by this summer alone when for the first few weeks and first couple of months of this summer, you're cutting your grass. I'm cutting my grass every four days and now I haven't cut it for three weeks. 
I'm okay with that because I've done a lot of other fun things with those hours that I used to do. But this dramatic back and forth, and if you've watched anything on TV, you know what it's like for them to live or others to live in that context where it just doesn't rain. And Elijah predicted that. He's trying to get them to understand that they have walked away from God. He's trying to help them understand how important it is to continue to follow God and the ups and downs of life. They just weren't getting it. So he decided that he was going to visibly demonstrate that. And he called on the prophets of Baal and those who were following them, maybe all the Israelites who were kind of on the fringe as to whether or not they were going to follow God and obey God or not, to almost a visible demonstration of the power of God. Those were the days when they sacrificed animals as a a necessity of being able to recognize my sin and the price of sin and I want it cleansed, I, I want it gone and so I offer a sacrifice to the living God in their case and many other cases to other gods to have my sins forgiven. And they visibly had the sacrifice there. Since Christ died on the cross, we come and recognize that through communion that he became the ultimate sacrifice. The entire Old Testament was pointing to that moment. And you and I have the opportunity to live in light of that moment, knowing that we are free in Christ and we no longer have to offer visible sacrifices. He offered it for us and we receive his sacrifice as a penalty for our sin. One of the reasons that God's amazing grace is so amazing that he paid my price. And I no longer have to parade that sacrifice in so that others can see what I've done. You imagine what it would have been like in those days where you actually had to bring your sacrifice to the temple? And everyone looked around and you had, instead of one sheep, you had six and they knew you really messed up. And everybody recognized it. Everybody saw it. In this context, they're offering one sacrifice. It's a bull. Elijah says, we're going to have two of them. I'm going to offer one. You're going to offer one. We're going to call on our gods. I'm going to call on my God. You're going to call on your God. And we'll see which one responds. We'll see which one sends fire from heaven and laps up the sacrifice. No torch. No flame, nothing. We're going to let your God prove whether or not he can do it. I'm going to show you and demonstrate you to, to you that my God can do it. Set the stage incredibly so. Poured water all over the sacrifice when it was his turn. Time after time after time, barrel after barrel on his. For them, he's just watching them weep and wail and cry out to their God and nothing happened. If you read the story out of 18, especially read it with imagination, he's almost chanting them a little bit or chiding them a little bit saying so what your God's not what he said he was well your God's not around your God's not lit maybe he's busy maybe your God has gone somewhere maybe your God's on vacation why don't you call louder and they did they cried out as loud as they could they cut themselves trying to get their God to respond and nothing and now it's Elijah's turn Now, I can't even fathom what it was like for hundreds of people to be there, hundreds of others who watch it, some who were by the hundreds participating in it, and now it's Elijah's turn. Can you imagine what it was like for him? I mean, he is standing representing the God of the universe and about to ask that God of the universe to send down fire from heaven and consume the altar. Had I been Elijah, I would have been practicing that somewhere by myself just to make sure that that really worked before I got up in front of hundreds of thousands of people and asked God to pour down fire from heaven and consume the sacrifice. I've used uh, 
number of illustrations through the years when I was sharing in Bible school and I would teach fourth graders or fifth graders or whatever year I was doing that. One year we were on Old Testament characters. I thought, this would be great. And one of them was Elijah. I didn't choose it. They were already chosen. One was Elijah and I thought, this is fun. Instead of having the demonstration, instead of telling the story in the classroom downstairs, we're going to go outside. I'm going to tell you a story. Had a fire already going. Logs built up there and all those kind of things. And, and, and I had some gunpowder in my hand in my pocket. At the time, I thought it was a good idea. <laughs> so I was in the middle of telling this story. And it's hard to believe I was somewhat animated. I was excited about the story, excited about the character, and set it up as best as I knew how. And these fourth graders were looking at me with eyes wide open, waiting for that moment to see what God was going to do. And at that moment, when I knew they weren't watching me, I took the gunpowder out of my hand and threw it down and missed the flame. Kind of took the edge off of the illustration. And then all of a sudden, as I'm going through the story, trying to recover myself, it explodes in another vantage point that totally Changed the context of the story and the illustration. Had I been Elijah, I would have wanted to try this somewhere before I did this and hundreds of people. But his confidence was in God that he was going to answer what he said he would do. Let's pick up the story this morning. Chapter 18, verse 36. 1 Kings 18, verse 36. Time of the sacrifice had come. Prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and I've done all these things at your command. In other words, I'm not doing this on my own. This is what you asked me to do. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. So these people will know, O God, O Lord, that you are the one and that you are turning their hearts back again. He had been asking them to choose. Are you going to be a follower of God or not? Are you going to take a stand or not? If Baal is God, then follow him. If God is God, then follow him. But you've got to decide. You can't stay on the fence. Choose who you're going to serve. May they know, O oh God, that you are the one that are turning their hearts back again. Would you please somehow, by the demonstration of your power, remind them of that? And then the fire of the Lord fell, burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and it also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell on their faces before God, prostrate before him and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah commanded them, See the, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let any of them get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them. And Elijah said to Ahab, You, you go and eat and drink, for there's a sound of heavy rain. He predicted it wasn't going to rain. Now he senses it, it is. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel bent down on the ground, put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, told a servant. And so he went out and looked. He said, there's nothing there. Seven times, Elijah said, go back and see. The servant, the seventh time, reported a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and get down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. A wind rose, a heavy rain came on, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah, tucked his cloak between his belt, and he ran off ahead of Elijah all the way to Jezreel. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, 
that said this, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like one of them. In other words, I will kill you. Elijah was afraid. He ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert, came to a broom tree, sat down under it, prayed that he might die. I've had enough, God. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. He lay down under the tree and fell asleep. If you've read that story or if you've never read that story, I've got to believe that there's a part of you like me that looks at these two side by side and say, how can this happen? How can you come to the point of seeing the demonstration of God in such a visible way when fire did come from heaven? You had already predicted it wasn't going to rain, and it didn't. Now you said it's going to rain, and it does. Fire from heaven, consume the sacrifices, take on the prophets of Baal, and you live through it all. How do you do that? How do you go from there, that unbelievable demonstration of power to chapter 19, where you're running for your life, ready to give up, and you want to die? How do you go from one extreme to the other, And what can I learn from that as well? I don't know about you, but to me, that's a pretty big turnaround. I remember the first time I read that. I remember the 12th. I remember the 80th time I read that. And I'm still finding myself learning from this context because I I try to understand what it was like to visibly see what God did. And I know what it's like to feel what he felt in chapter 19. Hard to believe it's the same God. After hearing Jezebel's threat, some say he ran 90 miles away. I mean, on Mount Carmel, he takes on the 450 prophets of the false god, and now he runs from one woman, from one person. Ahab the king's not after him. Jezebel is, and he runs for his life. Question I want to share with you this morning, or some of the answers to that is, how can this happen? How do you go from one extreme to the other? How do you come to that point? What are the causes of that? And what can I learn from it? Some causes that I want to share with you this morning, specifically out of this context. Number one, I honestly believe there's a physical cause that he's dealing with. Overworked, overwrought, overworried, and physically exhausted. J. Vernon McGee, in one of his commentaries on Kings, says there's no way to fully comprehend what it was like for him to be in that moment. What it was like to taunt the other gods and what it was like to stand in front of the entire nation of Israel and all of your enemies and ask God to demonstrate his power in a visible way. And then what he did to respond that way, killing all the prophets of Baal, no one will ever fully comprehend and understand the exhaustion physically that went with that. There's also a psychological factor that goes there. In a day of hypertension, frustration, disappointment, discouragement, letdown, rundown, and breakdown... We find ourselves in similar situations, as did they. Unfortunately, there was no one there to help him through the process or diagnose it. I believe there's also an emotional cause with that. The overwhelming energy that Elijah had to expel to do what he did. Wayne Cadero, in one of the best books I've ever read on how to get through the burnouts of life, writes a book called Leading on Empty. He says this, Serotonin is a chemical in your body. It's a natural feel-good hormone. It replenishes during times of rest and then fuels you while you're working. If, however, you continue to drive yourself without replenishing, a store of serotonin will be depleted. Now, as a substitute, your body is forced to replace it with adrenaline. The only problem is that adrenaline is designed for emergency use only. 
It's like those doors in a restaurant when open, they cause an alarm to sound. The problem is, if we decide to go that way and use all of our adrenaline, no alarm sounds, at least at first. Should you continue to run on adrenaline, it will destroy your system. You'll burn out sooner on the inside than you're able to see on the outside. The fuel of adrenaline keeps your engines running until eventually they turn against you and implode. Happens especially with people who are type A leaders who are overloading themselves with expectations, either their own or the expectations of people. They begin to feel that need for, I can't continue to go on. I can't do this any longer, no matter how hard I drive, no matter what I do. The expectations are enormous, and I'm not sure if I can fulfill them all. For those of us in ministry, we call that whole experience the Elijah syndrome, using him as the example. All of you at one level or life or the other have had times in your life where you're seeing God do some amazing things. And I've got to believe that every once in a while there are times in your life when you wonder where he's at. Or you wonder what he's doing. You also have a normal everyday routine where day after day after day, you've got a lot of things to accomplish, a lot of needs to meet, a lot of expectations are upon you. and You do your best to make sure you can do everything you can to meet all those expectations. For those of us in ministry, it's a little bit different in the sense, specifically for those who do what I do right now, and it sounds self-serving and it's not the intention, but specifically for those who do what I'm doing right now is everything we do all week long ramps up to one event. For most of you in the audience, you're doing your routine, you've got expectations, you've got people, you've got demands, and you're trying to meet those demands day after day. Your teacher and all of a sudden everybody's coming to you. The lessons plan has to be done. They're sitting there waiting to learn. The next day it's going to happen again. And those of you who are EMTs or police officers or business people or on the assembly line, wherever you're at, you've got those day-to-day expectations. For those of us in ministry, everything I do all week long with all the other stuff that comes up throughout the week ramps up for this event, this day, and every amount of energy I can possibly summon is spilled out and spent in this day. And then all of a sudden on Sunday night, the bottom falls out. I've ramped up all week for this event and I'm so excited about the opportunity. And when last week it goes so amazingly well and I hear dozens of people saying, you've got to be that good again this Sunday. Do you have any idea what that does? And so you ramp up and then all of a sudden on Sunday night and Monday morning, I should have changed that. It didn't work well. I wish I would have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I don't know if I can do this next Sunday. And five years ago, that was me. That almost killed me. The expectations were so high, I put more on myself than anybody else. And all of a sudden, you feel like you're there. The pressures of life, the pressures in my case of ministry are so overwhelming and demanding, it takes its toll. People in the pew expect you to preach the best message you possibly can. And when one weekend is over, the next one comes. One pastor said it's like giving birth on Sunday and on Monday finding out you're pregnant again. (laughs) Dealing with death and tragedy for all of these years, sometimes if we're not careful, takes its toll. And it's not just those of us in ministry. It's police officers and EMTs and counselors, parents sometimes. It's overwhelming. And if you're not careful, you'll come to the next point in your sermon notes, like Elijah, is you totally lose your perspective. 
In verse 10 of chapter 19, he said, look, I've been jealous for you, God. I've been zealous for you. The Israelites rejected your covenant. They've broken down your office, uh, altars. All the prophets have be, been put to death. I'm the only one left. I'm the only one, God. No one knows what I know. No one knows what I feel. No one understands me. No one knows what it's like to be in my position. I'm the only one left. No one understands what I feel. No one understands how hard this is. No one has gone through what I do. No one cares. And if you're not careful when you go through deep emotional pain or drain, it's so easy to lose your perspective and give up. The final thing that I think was so overlooked in this context that I want to share with you this fall in our next series after we get through this one, and that is the power of the enemy. One of the things that's almost overlooked because of the context of the changes back and forth is this unbelievable power of darkness that Jezebel and all of her priests experienced. They were the most powerful, demonized, visible images on earth at that particular time. Some of the most demonized individuals the host of darkness could produce, and that's who he's up against. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul said, look, I need you to know our, our wrestling here isn't against flesh and blood. It's not against people you can see. It's not against the enemy who doesn't like you or the bad reports that you get. Our enemy is in a host of darkness, authorities, rollers, powers of this dark world against all the spiritual forces of evil, and they come at you with everything they have. When you decide to take a stand for God and stand for him and live for him and do what it is he's called you to do, you have a target on your chest or a target on your back. And the enemy isn't out to make you have a flat tire so that you get to church late or have your alarm not go off so you get up late or mess your computer up so you don't have all the emails. He is out to kill you. He is out to destroy you. That's why it's so critically important that we don't give him access, that we don't let him in, that we don't give in to some of those thoughts because he is out to destroy you. I know he's certainly out to destroy me. So here's Elijah. He lost his energy. He lost his perspective. He's facing a powerful enemy. What does he do? Four things out of this context. There's way more, but four things out of this context I want to share with you this morning. It's in 1 Kings 19. It goes all the way to verse 16 and eventually to the end of the context. I want to just simply share the story. In verse 5, he lays down under the tree and he falls asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and says, get up and eat. And he looked around and there was food prepared. Did that for a period of time a second time. And he again found himself in a quiet, alone moment with God. And then verse 11, the Lord said, I want you to go out and stand by the mountain, the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now, if you've ever been at those low moments or you know things aren't going well, if you especially remember that as a child and your dad or your mom came to you and said, I need you to know that you need to go up to your room right now. And when your father comes home, he's going to have a conversation with you. That didn't always bring a lot of joy and delight. I can't wait. I hope he brings a pizza. This is going to be fun. It usually isn't one of those moments where you say, I can't wait for this. We're going to have a lot of fun, great conversation. If the God of the universe said, look, I want you to go over there. I'm going to come and talk to you for a while. And you know what you just went through and you know how you feel. What are you anticipating? I'm getting zapped from heaven. But he goes. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. The wind, after the wind, there was an earthquake, but he wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And God, Elijah, heard it. He pulled his cloak over his face and went out. 
God said, what are you doing here? He replied, I've been jealous, and that's what I shared with you a moment ago. God says, go back the way you came. Go to the desert. Anoint Hazarel, king over Aaron. Also anoint Jehu and Elisha, and they will succeed you as a prophet. Four things in this context that I love that God does here, and I want to give you so that you understand how important they are. And number one is God let him rest. God just said, stop. You don't have to keep going. You don't have to keep this pace. You know that 40 million Americans wrestle with some kind of sleep disorder? 40 million. Out of 300 million, 40 million wrestle with some kind of sleep disorder. We've got to figure out that we can't keep up this pace. We've got to figure out somehow how to have some boundaries in our life so that we can recharge our batteries and get renewed and refreshed and continue on in this journey until God calls us home. Well, let me just tell you, God loved you enough. God loved me enough that he did give us some guidance and he gave direction 6,000, 3,000 years ago. And he said this, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. In other words, every seven days, every week, I want you to take one day and I want you to stop. I just want you to slow down. I want you to concentrate on me. I want you to protect that day. When he says keep it holy, he's essentially saying, I want you to protect it with everything you have. I want you to build a fence around it. I want you to build some boundaries around it. I don't want you to give it away. I don't want you to let it get away. I don't want you to try to do all the things you didn't get done in the first six days so that you can finally feel like, okay, tomorrow I can finally function. I want you to stop. And I want you to protect that day with everything you have, not just for this one hour that you're here, But I want you to protect this day with everything you have. I have built it into you. And I have wired you so that you can recharge your batteries. You can renew your energy. You can continue on in this journey. But only if you do what I ask you to do. And that is every seven days. Stop. Now, if that's ever a word for our society in our world, it's now. We go so fast, so long, with so much, with so many great ideas and so many good things to do, and so many needs to meet, and so many expectations we put on ourselves, and so many more things that will be there tomorrow that the list becomes endless. And so all of a sudden, when we're only taking a few things off the list, it stacks up until we get to Sunday and we find ourselves saying, well, then i got to at least somehow get all these done because tomorrow they're waiting. And I often wonder sometimes, believe me, I know for me, who made the list? God says, I want to give you you one of the most amazing gifts you'll ever have. It's a gift of rest. Take advantage of it. Stop. Second thing he does is he helps him recharge. He gives him food, helps him recharge his batteries. and, And my encouragement to you when you're in those moments where you feel like you can't go on, life is so fast, the expectations are so high, and you need to recharge your batteries, find what's best to be able to do that. Maybe it's a change of pace. Maybe it's buying a Harley. Whatever you need to do to be... You don't do that. Somebody said to me one day, you know they make these helmets with Bluetooth in them so you can answer your phone? I said, are you out of your mind? Why do you think I'm on that? Whatever you need to do to recharge your batteries... Hopefully this is one of those things, which is why it's so important. Not just fit it in when I have time or I have nothing else to do, or we're not going camping this weekend, so I should go to church, probably should go to church. This is one of the reasons we do. It helps you recharge your batteries, re-energize you, 
remind you of your perspective, remind you of the glory of God, remind you of the power of God. Do you realize one of the things God said over and over and over again, more in the Old Testament than almost anything else? Remember. Remember what I've done. Tell your kids what I've done. Remember what I've done. You know why he said that? Because he knew we'd forget. (laughs) Whatever you need to do to help recharge your batteries, renew your energy. For me in ministry, the demands sometimes are overwhelming. And the administrative side of that, and writing sermons and trying to be creative and all the things that go with that sometimes get overwhelming. And I literally, as strange as it sounds, I go to the hospital and do visitation because I I enjoy that. I like lifting people up. I like visiting people, and I like going to those moments. I got a pastor friend who has a church this size. said, the last time I went to the hospital to visit someone, I fainted. I didn't want to do it. I can't do it. I don't like it. Whatever it is, different for all of us, but find that thing to do that. Number three, remind him. God reminded him of his presence. And right underneath that somewhere, remember the promises of God. Every once in a while, in the midst of all the ups and downs of life, when things are going well, when things are going bad, when the bottom falls out, you and I both need to remember the promises of God. A number of them, clearly. One is, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Even when you're going through deep waters thinking no one cares and no one understands, you've lost your perspective and feeling like you're alone, remember the promise of God when he said, I will never, ever, ever leave you, and I'll never forsake you. Even if you think everyone else has, Even if you think I have, I'm telling you now, I won't. Matter of fact, I'll walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. I go back to Psalm 139 a lot, and I love it in the context here. When David said, God, where can I go that you're not there? I get up in the morning, there you are. I lie down at night, there you are. God, I got to believe that if I went to hell itself, you'd come and take me back. Where can I go that you're not there? And so every once in a while when I feel like it's so overwhelming that I can't go on, I'm reminded of the promises of God. I'll never, ever leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm always there for you, no matter what. And finally, he gave him a friend. He renewed his call. He renewed his commitment, and he gave him other people in his life. Elisha, who is a character that we're going to talk about next week, becomes one of those. Friday night, I had the opportunity to speak at uh, Seneca Hills. And I, I love that place and love what it all represents. So many of our kids and students and leaders have been affected by that. And Mike gave me a chance to speak to the men's barbecue. And, and one of the things that I realized when it's just a sea of men is that we're all, by nature, fixers. And we'll figure it out. We'll work on it. We'll do it. We can do, raise ourselves up by our bootstrap. I don't need anybody else. I can do it on my own. Somehow I'll get through. And I just said to them, you've got to remember the importance of close relationships, of people you trust, of someone when you're walking through deep valleys, you know you can have there with you to walk through that. Now, I want to tie all this together with one verse out of James. When James talks to us about life near the end of chapter 5, he said, look, you're happy? Sing. You're sad? Let's pray. You're sick? Let me pray over you. Let me pray for you. Let's anoint you with oil, which is what we do in the CNMA. Nothing mystical or magical about the oil. We just pray and we use that that symbol to remind us of the presence and power of God and healing. And then of all the people that he could have used as an example of prayer and God's response to prayer, he uses Elijah. And when I looked at that in the context of this, I thought there's a powerful tie in here. 
So for those of us who really don't believe that God still works today, and for those of us who believe that God doesn't hear, and for those of us who believe that God isn't interested in my prayer, Elijah, an ordinary man, which is exactly what James says he is, an ordinary individual just like us, he prayed and it didn't rain. And he prayed again and it did. So just when you think that God can't answer your prayer or God isn't interested or God won't touch you, let me remind you, an ordinary guy just like us prayed and God answered. So pray. There's a flip side. An ordinary guy just like you and just like me, if not careful, succumbed to burnout and depletion and emptiness so much that he wanted to die. So if it can happen to him, it can to you and me. So make sure there's some boundaries in your life. Make sure you're finding the rest. Make sure you're taking advantage of the Sabbath day that God has given you. Make sure that you have people in your life that can give you perspective and keep you balanced. Make sure you find out what's necessary to renew your energy, renew your relationship with God, to recharge your batteries. Because if it can happen to Elijah, you've got to remember, he's just like us. And if it can happen to him, it can happen to us. So be very careful to think you're above it all because it can happen to you as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these stories. I love this stuff. I, I, I hope it's evident. There's just so much teaching and truth that you've preserved for all of these years so that we can find answers and feel like we're not alone. And they give us insights and guidance from your word. And so, Father, in the name of Jesus, continue to teach us, not just for the moment, but to process what we've heard this morning and to understand where it applies. The first service I ask, and I'm going to ask you to do this as well. Last Sunday morning, it was just an incredible moment. You visibly went outside and kind of let it go. And I, and I hope you did that, and I hope you felt the release of that. This morning, I'm just going to ask you if you're going through some deep valleys and you want to make sure that, that even if you know this in your head, that God sees, I'd love you to raise your hand. I want to pray for you. And then we're going to close. Right now, raise them up. All right. Father, just like last Sunday morning when we saw that release, this morning we know you see our hearts. Could have easily left Elijah to wallow in his pain and wallow in his anger and emotion, but you saw him and you picked him up. And so for all of these this morning who are your friends, who are followers of you, who you love, who you died for, as you saw their heart to hurt their need, I pray, oh God, in the name of Jesus, that you will meet it in a really profound way and that they will know that you have heard and that you have seen them and that you're going to walk them through it and not the other side just like you did him. In Jesus' name I pray.